It's uh, Veterans Day this week. Let's thank those guys. You are appreciated. Thanks for your service. I have never been in the military. Um, so when it comes to combat, I have absolutely no experience. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. But I am fascinated by like military special ops. I read every book I can get my hands on. I watch videos on Green Berets and Army Rangers and recon guys and Navy SEALs and all that stuff. I've read everything I could find on it. I watch every video I can find on it. I literally have read thousands of pages, watched hours of video about these guys and how they operate. And I know a lot about Navy SEAL training. I know what they go through to actually just make it into the SEAL program and then what that involves. And I'm telling you, I have read the books. I have seen the videos. Does that make me ready to fight as a Navy SEAL? <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance. The only thing I have is the haircut. That is it. <laughs> Beyond that, I am absolutely hopeless because there is a huge difference between reading about combat and actually being trained to fight, right? There's a huge difference between having seen some military movies and actually knowing how to use weaponry and knowing how to go into battle and win the battle. And so I, I think that describes a lot of the Christians that I know. We, we have heard about spiritual warfare. We have listened to sermons on spiritual warfare. We have read passages in the Bible about spiritual warfare. Maybe we've gone to seminars on spiritual warfare, read books about how to deal with the enemy and all that kind of stuff. And too many of us, though, can quote the verses and talk about the concepts, and we still have absolutely no idea what we're doing in the battle. And we're going out there and... and People who name the name of Christ are getting creamed in this battle every day. Because here's the problem. It doesn't matter that I don't know how to operate as a Navy SEAL because I'm not going to have to go into combat. But you were born into combat. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, the scripture tells us that we were actually born in the middle of a war. And you don't even get time to grow up and train. When you're born again, spiritually reborn, it's picture like uh, you have a, a, a woman gives birth to a baby. The baby comes out, they cut the umbilical cord, wipe some of the goop off, hand the kid a rifle and a helmet and say, go, and the battle is on. That's what happens to us when we come into the kingdom of God, when we accept Christ as Savior and begin to try to follow him. We are literally just babes in our walk with God, and yet we are in the battle now. You don't get to wait. You, the enemy doesn't go, oh, they're just young. I'll leave them alone. But in fact, some of the greatest attacks that you will ever face come in the early days of your relationship with the Lord. Because he's always going to attack those who are weaker. He's always going to attack those who don't know how to fight back. And so I can, I can sit comfortably in my recliner at home eating cheese puffs and drinking Diet Coke, reading about Navy SEALs and battle. But we don't get to do that when it comes to spiritual warfare. We are right in the middle of a spiritual battle. We're born on the battlefield. And, and we have to train while we're being attacked. I don't know if you've ever um, gone paintballing. It's kind of 
the fat is a little bit gone, but you could still go paintballing. I'm sure you know what paintballing is. They give you these rifles. They have these little balls of paint in them, right? And they split you up into two teams and you go out and you hide behind rocks and, and things like that and you fire at each other and if the thing hits you, it explodes paint on you and that's how we know that you're hit. It is a blast. It is so much fun to go out and play paintball, but here's the deal. It's not real. That's why it's fun. It's not real. Just imagine that it wasn't actually paintball rifles, but real rifles. And you and your buddies all saved up a hundred bucks each and you went out to this place and they gave you all M16s and you went and hide behind rocks and whoever's left is left at the end and that's the one who gets to go home. We wouldn't be so excited about that, would we? Because when it's real, there's a lot at stake. And too many Christians think of spiritual warfare like it's a paintball war. It doesn't really seem real. You can't see it. I mean, there's nobody actually literally attacking you, right? Wrong. You're literally being attacked. And your enemy is the most powerful enemy that mankind has ever faced. And the Bible says he has come only to kill, steal, and destroy. I know this is getting old. I know I've been talking about this now for three weeks. But we have to get this driven home into our hearts. We can't just whistle through a minefield and think that everything is going to be okay. I have been involved in ministry since I was 15 years old. And I could tell you this. In those 11 years, <laughs> I have watched so many people I love get picked off by snipers. I have watched so many people I love fall into temptation that just took them down a road that they never came back from. I've watched so many people that I care about listen to the enemy's lies and begin to believe things that are not true and the things that they believe that are not true leads them down a road of destruction. And I have seen it happen again and again and again. And so in some ways, I realize that as we approach this subject of spiritual warfare, I'm kind of like an overprotective parent. And, and, and you know, just imagine that you're a parent and uh, you had a teenager who died in a traffic accident while texting and driving. Do you think you would become a huge advocate against texting and driving? Do you think you're, the, 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 the next teenagers who came up in your family would have to sit and listen to lectures from you again and again and again about how dangerous this is and how you better not do it and how there's so much at stake? This is not a minor thing. That's exactly how I feel as a pastor as I have watched people again and again and again just get creamed in this war because they didn't take it seriously. They didn't understand what it means to put on the full armor of God. And all you have to do, if you think this spiritual warfare thing is, is just, uh, is, is really, you know, invisible, is not really happening, think about this. Think about the ways that the enemy attacks. Temptation. Hey, look, I know the Lord says this isn't good for you, but I'm telling you, if you come this way just a little bit, you're going to have the time of your life. You will never regret this. Lies. God's word says that there is only one God. But I'm telling you, how could a good God be so unloving as to send a bunch of people to hell just because they're not followers of his particular religion? Destruction of families. Hey, listen, if it doesn't work out, 
we can always go our separate ways. False doctrine. You know, Jesus, he was sent from God and he's a really good teacher, but he's not God. Distraction. Hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. Follow me. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And pretty soon we have followed this shiny thing so far that we don't know where we got lost or how to get back. Temporal values. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the grenades, they just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And there is so much at stake. And we're not playing for bragging, bragging rights. There are eternal issues at stake here. And in the midst of that battle, most Christians are content to sit back and hope for the best while bombs go off and, and bullets whistle past their heads. And that, I am convinced, is why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include this last part in his letter to the Ephesians and to all of us. There are certain resources we need to be trained to use. There are defensive tools that God has given us to protect us from the onslaught of an enemy who is out to get us. And if we don't know how to use those things, we're going to get creamed. There are offensive weapons we need to learn to operate or we will never survive, let alone thrive, the way that God tells us He wants us to. So if you have not been paying attention, if you have managed to sleep through every sermon so far in the book of Ephesians, I'm telling you, wake up. Give me your attention today because you are going into battle and you are going to get wiped out if you're not paying attention to what God's word has to say, because your spiritual survival may depend upon what we discuss today and in the next couple of weeks. So do I have your attention? Good. Let's read the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. My Bible just falls right open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 13. He's been talking about this spiritual battle, and here's what he says. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's a list of required gear for those who are going to be successful in the battle. Paul calls it the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. And even though he describes it piece by piece, he's talking about an ensemble, if you will. It all has to be used together. This made me think, you know, um, there are many differences you may have noticed between men and women. One of the big differences between men and women is the way that we shop for clothes. Guys buy clothes, women buy outfits, right? So a guy goes, he's like, oh, that shirt looks good, and he takes it. And he gets it home, and his wife goes, well, what are you going to wear that with? You don't have any purple pants that that will go with, Right? But a woman goes shopping and she's picking out a blouse and a skirt and some pants to go with it and a belt and the earrings and the shoes and the purse and all that stuff, right? Because she's putting together an outfit. And 
And I want us to think that way when we think about the armor of God. We're going to break this down and we're going to look at these pieces that go into the outfit, but it's the whole outfit, guys. We have to put on the full armor of God. And we can't just mess around and go, well, I got a helmet. That's all I got time for. I'm going to go off and see what happens. I could tell you what's going to happen and it's not going to be pretty. And so Paul is describing here, this full outfit, and he begins with the belt, which is interesting because, uh, you know, if somebody is going to buy an outfit, I don't think they find a nice belt and then build an outfit around it. It's usually like an accessory that you just put on at the end, and yet he begins with the belt. He, he says that we're to gird our loins with truth. It's known uh, as the belt of truth. And, and we can think of it as a belt, but really, if we're going to be accurate, we should think of it more like a girdle. It kind of goes around the waist here, and, and um, the picture that he would have in mind, of course, is the Roman soldier. And the, I said last week, Paul's writing this from jail, and he's sitting next to a Roman soldier day in and day out. He's looking at this armor, basically, every hour of every day. When he's thinking about the armor of God, he's looking at what these guys are wearing. And you'll notice there that he has this sort of gold thing that hangs down in the front. It's attached to this belt, right? Now, in, the, in warfare in those days, the Roman army, the great army of the world at that time, uh, as you can see, the, uh, the guys dressed a little different than warriors dressed today. One of the things that makes them different from one of our army rangers or Green Beret is uh, he's wearing a dress. You don't usually see a lot of guys uh, fighting battles in dresses, but he actually has a skirt. And, and if, you, if you do the research, you'll see that, that um, typically the skirts would go down past the calf. And, and for walking around during the day, it was just fine. But when you went into battle, what you would do is you would pull up the skirt and cinch it into your belt so that it would get up and be short, kind of like gym shorts, so that you would have the freedom to move and you wouldn't get caught up in the flowing skirt that you're wearing. So the belt becomes this essential thing because without the belt, you are going to get tripped up. And so this belt sort of plays two different roles. One is it makes it possible for you to fight by getting everything out of the way. The other thing is it's a place where you attach everything that you're going to need. It becomes essential. Now, in this case, in this picture, um, our model here, he's just wearing this sort of gold belt and this whole um, sort of apron that hangs down in front for hopefully obvious reasons, right? And, and that, that part that's attached to the front, you may think it's just decorative, but it's pretty important to him, I could promise you, Right? And, and, and if he was fully um, dressed for battle and had weapons with him, which he doesn't in this picture, if he was, he would also have attached to his belt two sheaths. On one side, there would be a short dagger that would be attached to the belt. On the other side, there would be a longer broadsword that is attached to the belt. And he would be able to use one or the other or both as needed in battle. So he would cinch up his skirt and he would attach the things that he needed to his belt. So Paul is telling us we have to put on this belt, this girdle, if you will, of truth. Truth being such a foundational thing in this war, because if we don't have the truth, we will not be able to attach the things to that truth that we need. Truth is so essential to the battle that it's probably, in my mind, the most essential thing 
of all. It is primary. And the reason it's primary is because the primary battleground in this spiritual battle is the mind. That's where most of the battle is fought. In fact, I want you to take your Bibles and go to the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you're in Ephesians, it's just back three, four books to the left. Um, Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is describing spiritual warfare. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing rised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Pay close attention to verse 5. We are destroying what? Speculations, ideas, beliefs. Okay? Ideas that we don't know the answer to something so we speculate. And, And we have to understand that's a huge part of the attack of our enemy. He wants us speculating. He wants us just making guesses. He wants us saying, well, let's see. Um, you know, uh, it looks like uh, the, the, the world is very old. So how could that be? I wonder if maybe somehow it's always been here. Maybe it predated um, God or maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe the world created itself. All of these speculations. It's so fascinating when you study Um, these different speculations about the origins of the earth, because other than maybe Jim Thompson, I don't think any of us was here. So it's going to be speculation, right? It's going to be speculation. And so, you know, you can read certain writings, certain ideas, and certain views, but what's interesting is that if you are speculating about the origins of the universe, and you've already decided that that you're not allowed to consider God as a possibility, then when you look at the universe, you have to come up with some other way that this could all be here and show so much design without a designer. And when you read atheistic scientists who write about this, brilliant people, the the most common um, beliefs today, there are two among the greatest um, atheistic uh, scientists. One is that uh, the universe created itself. And this is Stephen Hawking, okay? That, this is no dummy. Stephen Hawking, the universe created itself. It's the only explanation he can come up with because he's already ruled out God. So when you rule out God, you have to speculate. He comes up with the universe created itself. There are other great thinkers who have come up with this idea because when you look at it mathematically and you look at the design of the universe, the only way that it's possible for a universe to exist that works this way, it's like the odds are some gigantic number of trillions of zeros to one that that could happen by chance. And the odds are so great that it's literally considered to be mathematically impossible. So what scientists have come up with is something called multiple universe theory. And the idea is that in other realms, there are other universes. And if there are tens of trillions of universes, then the odds become better that in one of those universes, there could possibly be a situation where the universe works the way it does. So the theory is multiple universes. You go, you're lying. People don't really believe that. Go look it up. It's the most common thought. Multiple universe theory. 
We're speculating. And when we remove God from the possible options, we have to speculate in the wildest ways. And he says, we're fighting against speculations. And then go on. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So we're talking about speculations and knowledge. And we are taking every what? Thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The way that Paul describes spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians is, it's going on in the mind. He's attacking your thoughts, your ideas. He's tempting you to speculate and make stuff up and then live as though those things are true. And if you're going to win the battle, you're going to have to win it with truth. If you don't understand truth, you're going to fall in this battle of the mind. Satan is, the scripture says, a deceiver. He is the father of lies. His stock in trade is falsehood. That's where he's most effective in attacking people. So if you want to avoid being taken out by lies, you had better know the truth. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at this from a different way. It's right after Ephesians. So go back that to the right. Go to Philippians chapter 4 and see how this battle works practically in our lives. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Is anxiety a problem in our culture today? Yeah, okay. Um, Verse 7, and the peace of God, the opposite of anxiety, peace, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Or other translations say, let your mind dwell on these things. Or think about these things. Or meditate on these things. So anxiety is all about the what ifs and things I can't control and what's going to happen tomorrow and what if so-and-so does this and what if this happens and, it, and my heart begins to race and I begin to get out of control and anxiety can take over and control me. And many of us know this from experience. And it, our minds are racing. And God says, listen, you actually get to choose what you let your mind dwell on. You don't get to choose every thought that passes through. But you do get to choose where you let your mind dwell. And he says, dwell on things that are true, that are good, that are honorable, and so forth. On down that list in verse 8. We get to choose what we let our mind dwell on. Paul knew that Satan loves to attack our minds with falsehood. Look at, go to the book of Acts. We'll look at one more example of this. Now, I, I, I particularly like this example in Acts because this is Paul's story of ministry. And we're in Acts chapter 20. And, and I told you months ago that uh, this whole Ephesian church to whom this letter was originally written, this whole Ephesian church began when Paul came to a city called Ephesus and he began to preach the gospel in spite of all the darkness and all of the false teaching that was there. And some people were given the grace to believe and they began to follow Jesus and a church was born out of that and Paul stayed there as their pastor for some time. And he appointed elders And then it was time for him to leave and go on with his missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 20, he is giving his farewell address to the elders of the Ephesian church. This is the very same people that he's writing to in the letter that we've been studying. 
And so in, Ephes- in Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 28, listen to what he says to the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things or lies to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that, that uh, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There, there's going to be an attack. And as soon as I leave, he says, I know there's going to be a battle of ideas. And there are going to be people that are already here. They're going to raise up and they're going to start teaching stuff that's not true. There are also going to be others who come in from the outside and they're going to claim to have some secret knowledge that nobody has ever had before. And they're going to come and start sharing ideas with you that are not true. They're going to be like savage wolves. And if you let them in, they're going to tear the prey apart and the church will be destroyed. So be on guard. And what can I commend you to so that you will be protected? The word of God in his grace. If we don't get the word of God into our hearts and minds, we are going to get trampled in this battle. And too many churchgoers are getting creamed in the battle because they simply don't have a basic understanding of the truths that are found in God's word. And Satan, by the way, does not mind you attending church as long as you're not being taught the word. He does not mind you attending church where they're teaching falsehood. He does not mind you attending church where they're just not even talking about the things of God's word when they're talking about other things. He's all for that because people are swallowing spiritual poison every day with this false teaching because they don't know the difference between lies and the truth of God's word. All of these lies. You know, there are many roads that lead to heaven. Really? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or have you heard this? You know, Muslims and Christians, we actually worship the same God. We just call him by a different name. Really? Because my Bible says that the, that the one true God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always existing and that there is no other name given under heaven or earth by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. Or how about this? You know what? If you believe hard enough, you have faith, you can really speak a new reality into existence. Faith has no power, my friends. In and of itself, faith is powerless. All power belongs to God. He is God Almighty. He is not your genie in a bottle. He is sovereign and you are not, no matter how much faith you have, you can't make anything happen by simply speaking the right words and believing hard enough that those words have power. 
Some people are, are teaching that, you know, when I read the Bible, I, t- I see this God who is a vengeful God. He is a bully. He's just waiting for people to go to, to die so that he can send them to hell. This is a God who just wants to crush people. He doesn't love people. If he loved people, why would babies get cancer? If he loved people, why would there be children starving in Africa? If he loved people, why would there be so many, so many wars? If this God is so great, and so on, and so on, and so on. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and eternal life. That's the truth of who God is. Some are saying, you know, God is a nice old sort of grandfatherly figure. And you know what? He just loves you. And he's just glad when you come and visit. And, and he's not really concerned about the way that you're living your life. And, and he's not all about rules and things like that. And, and he loves you just the way you are. And he would never ask you to change. Really, because Romans 2 says God is a righteous judge who will pour out his wrath on all unrepentant sinners. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Or have you heard this? If you're good enough, if you're religious enough, you can eventually become just like God and rule over your own planet. They come knocking on your door with that one. But the scripture says there is one God, there's never been another, there will never be another. Or how about God's will for your life? is for you to be completely free from all pain and suffering and disease right now. But the scripture says that God uses pain and suffering and difficulty in our lives to shape us into the shape of Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And that sometimes, this is mind-blowing, but it's true, it's right there in scripture, sometimes he even sends difficulty into your life for your own good. See, my point is this. We could just keep going. All of these are familiar lies. We all know people who believe these lies. Some of us are struggling with these, with these lies in our very own lives today. But every one of those problems is answered by the truth of God's Word. It's the belt of truth, you guys. Satan loves to twist doctrine, confuse and mislead people about what God has said. Let me give you a case in point. You've all heard the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? It's a cautionary tale. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat for it, uh, from it nor touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, and the very next thing they do is hide from God. And the death story begins. I just want you to notice it's such a simple story. 
A lot of people think it's a made-up story just written for Sunday school kids to simplify things. No, I believe this is exactly what happened. It's exactly how it happened. Because our enemy has just been telling the same lie ever since. And so what's the lie? He, he begins with confusion. Look at verse 1. Now the, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He doesn't come right out and feed her a lie. He asks her a question designed to confuse her. Because God had not said you can't eat from any tree of the garden, right? In fact, God had put trees all throughout the garden and said, Eat from them and enjoy them. But there is a tree in the middle of the garden that if you eat from it, that will be your disobedience to me. That will be you uh, raising up yourself in your own lordship. That will be you taking control of your life. And when that happens, you will begin to die. And so that's what he had told them. The enemy comes with a half-twisted version of that and says, has God really put you in this beautiful garden and said you can't even eat any of this? And of course, she passes that test, sort of. She says, oh, no, no, um, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. She got that right. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Is that correct? No, God never said he can't touch it. He just said you can't eat from it. So the confusion is beginning to work because now she's starting to question God and she's starting to say, huh, what did he say? I'm not sure what he said. I think he said something like this and now she's already off track. And so the enemy attacks in two different ways. The first is with confusion. He twists what God has said in order to deceive us. And the second we see in verses four and five, it's just a direct lie. If you look at verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. It's a lie. Death began that moment that they began to eat. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the lie. You can be God. He just comes right out and gives it to him. You could be your own God. Stop listening to him. Start doing what I say. Have your own way. Do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way that makes sense to you. Forget what God says. It's all very confusing anyway, isn't it? And so he starts with confusion and he goes directly to lies. And we know what the result of that was. It's a cautionary tale. Let me show you a success story. Luke chapter 4. New Testament, third book, Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of Luke 4. We talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus has been baptized, received the Holy Spirit. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we're going to get to see some of that temptation here in Luke chapter 4. Verse 1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So here comes temptation number one. He finds him in this weakened state, hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's been completely fasting and dedicating himself to his relationship with his father. He's been getting 
endlessly, relentlessly tempted for all of these 40 days, and he comes to the point where he's like, I got to have some food or I'm going to die. And if, if you study um, medical evidence on this, you will find that a person who is in good shape could theoretically go about 40 days, and then if you don't eat, you're going to die. Jesus gets to this point, and when at his weakest place, he gets attacked. Remember what we said about the baby gazelles? The enemy goes after the weak ones. He finds Jesus at his weakest point, and he attacks him. And he attacks him with what seems sort of uh, harmless. Uh, he says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone, these stones to become bread. It seems simple enough. It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with this. First of all, though, what's he doing? He's asking him to exalt himself. Prove yourself. Show everybody that you deserve to be worshipped and honored, which is not what he came to do. He came to humble himself and lay down his life and die. But he says, I want you to exalt yourself. If you're really who you say you are, just go against what your father has told you to do by fasting in the wilderness, and instead, just use your power to serve yourself. One of the very interesting things you'll see as you read the Gospels is that Jesus never stopped being God. He never laid aside his divinity, so to speak. But he laid aside the, the use of, of his powers to serve himself. Instead, he used only his miraculous powers in order to further his mission and to serve others. And so the enemy is, champ, is uh, tempting him here. And he's basically saying, look, I know your father sent, sent you out here, but you're dying out here. Don't trust your father. You need more than what your father has given you. And Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And then we go on to verse 5. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. It's the same, same lie he's been telling all along. Worship me. Take your worship away from God. Bow down before me. I'll give you everything. I will make your life so much better. I know you came for the cross and all of the pain and all the difficulty. You know how much rejection you're going to face? Do you know how many people are going to spurn you? Do you know what kind of suffering you're going to have to go through? I'm telling you, I'll give you this whole world. All you have to do is worship me. Take a shortcut. Disobey your father. And what does he say? Verse 8, Jesus answered and said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And so the enemy continues his assault, verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Do you get this? The enemy is quoting scripture. And he got it right. It's Psalm 91. He's quoting directly from Psalm 91, but you know what he's doing? He's taking it out of context, which is what false teachers always tend to do when they have a Bible in their hands. Verse 11, and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. <clears throat> and Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
The devil says, listen, reasonable people don't really take God at his word. If you really trust him, if you really trust him, you should put him to the test. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It's fascinating to me, by the way, that he gets these three attacks. He responds to all three attacks with scripture that he didn't have to look up. He had it in his heart. And all of it came from the book of Deuteronomy. When was the last time you read the book of Deuteronomy and said, I'm going to get some great Christian living points here today? Every word in God's book is truth, and it's meant to be life transforming. So here's the thing. We say we know we're in a battle. We believe we're going to have victory. But so few of us actually appropriate the first piece of armor that God offers us, this belt of truth. And we're tripped up. Tripped up by false doctrine, we're tripped up by temptation, we're tripped up by lies, we're tripped up by the world system, we're tripped up by temporal values, because we're not walking in the truth. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God, treasured in the heart. Some of your, some of your Bibles might say, Your word have I hidden in my heart. It's the same concept. It's the idea of hiding buried treasure in a place where you can always get to it. I'm going to have God's word in my heart because I'm not going to have time to just Google the verses and find out what it is that I'm being lied to here. I got to hide it in my heart and it will keep me from sin. Guys, there are traps of falsehood everywhere. And if we don't walk around in the truth, we're going to get severely hurt in the battle. But there's more to this ensemble that we're called to put together and, and, and to put on and to leave on. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. See, again, we've got our Roman soldier. See the silver breastplate that he's wearing? It protects every one of his vital organs from the neck to the waist. He's protected on the sides. He's protected in the back. He's protected in the front. This is this breastplate. The idea, you can stick a knife in that breastplate and it'll probably bend your knife. You could shoot an arrow into that breastplate and it will break your arrow. There's this breastplate that he wears that makes him somewhat impervious to the enemy's attacks and it protects all of his vital organs. Listen, if you get hit in the arm with an arrow, it hurts. You get hit in the liver with an arrow and you're done. See the difference? So he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The enemy aims his assaults where they're going to do the most damage, guys. He attacks families. He attacks our thought life. He attacks God's church. He aims his arrows where they're going to do the most harm. And he doesn't really care what you believe is true as long as you don't live it out. You got all the doctrine right. You could be in a seminary teaching a theology class to future pastors and you can have all of the doctrine right. You can have the Bible memorized in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic and you can be able to spout it off at a moment's notice and the enemy doesn't mind at all as long as you don't actually put it into practice. He's talking about the breastplate of righteousness. Don't get confused. He's certainly not talking about self-righteousness. I mean, the Pharisees were filled with self-righteousness, right? And what did Jesus say? He said that self-righteousness condemned them. 
And, and he's not even talking about what the, the theologians call imputed righteousness, which is to say that God has given the righteousness of Christ to me and I am counted as righteous because I'm under the blood of Christ. He's not talking about that imputed righteousness because that is not something that we put on. If we're believers, that is something that is already done for us and has nothing to do with us and what we do. He's talking about practical righteousness. Satan doesn't care if your doctrine is right if it doesn't change the way you live. Our self-righteousness is worthless. If we're not walking with Jesus moment by moment in the righteousness that he gives us, if we're not living out the truth that we know, we're in deep trouble. In Matthew chapter 3, go to Matthew chapter 3 real quick. You guys are not listening fast enough today, so let me hurry. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, now, now let me back up, this is John the Baptist preaching. This is before Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist is preaching repentance. And as the crowds are responding, it's like a harvest crusade, right? There's a bunch of people around, and he gives an invitation, and people literally come forward to respond to this call to repentance and to be baptized in John's baptism, which is a baptism, a symbol of your repentance. And John says, if you want to repent, come forward. And you know who comes forward? A bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees. And it didn't go so well for them. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 3, pick it up in verse uh, 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now let's just be fair. Put yourself in the sandals of these Pharisees for a second. You came to hear this prophet preach, and you responded to his message. You came forward. You said, I've been a bad guy. I want to repent. And his response is, get out of here. And he calls you a bunch of snakes. What do you want from us? We responded. We came forward. And his answer is very clear. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't talk to me about repentance. Repent. Turn around. Walk the other way. Stop living the way you've been living and start living in the righteousness that God makes available to you through the power of His Spirit. If all your beliefs don't result in a changed life, you are not a part of the family of God. No matter what church you attend, no matter how much of the Bible you can quote, no matter how many Christian bumper stickers you have on your car, or how many cute little pithy sayings you put about Jesus on your Facebook page, you are not a member of the family of God if the grace of God is not in the process of changing your life. We're called to righteousness. We're not perfect, we're on a journey, but there should be change. And if there's not, we're just talking about repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because guys, the battle rages on. If we do not understand the truth of God's word, and if we don't let it work its way out in our actual behavior, do you see how truth and righteousness fit together hand in hand? if we don't actually work it out in our behavior, then we're going to get crushed in the battlefield. Don't you think it's time to start taking God's word seriously enough to learn it and live it out? I mean, if this battle is really all that the scripture says it is, aren't we sitting ducks if we don't? The belt of truth, 
the breastplate of righteousness. These things are essential pieces of the ensemble of armor that God tells us to put on and leave on. So here's a quick application point. Soldiers don't go into battle alone. We need one another in this process. It's not just about whether or not you, you have your quiet time and, and read your Bible, but we actually need support from one another in learning the truth. I mean, it's easy to misunderstand. It's easy to be confused. There is an enemy out there who's taking God's word and quoting it to us out of context. There's an enemy out there who is giving us half of God's word but not the other half and replacing the second half with a lie. We need each other. We need good Bible teachers. We need to be in in small groups. We need to be in one-on-one Bible uh, uh, relationships where we sit down over a cup of coffee and we read a chapter of Scripture together and we talk about it and we learn from one another because the battle is on and somebody's got to have your back. Otherwise, you're going to get confused. We need to learn God's word from those who know it. And we need to be those who know it and teach it to others. We need to get support and accountability from other believers on this issue of righteousness. Because we can learn all this truth, but if we're not actually implying it in our lives, what are we doing? Because the enemy loves it when there are people who wave big Christian signs and act like idiots. Right? We've seen them. Some of us have been them. The enemy loves it. It's one more strike against the church. Bunch of hypocrites. They believe all this stuff, but they're not living it. Guys, we got to link arms here. The battle is on. The battle rages. And the question for you is, are you dressed for success? Let's stand and we'll pray.